Hello and welcome to another episode of Sounds Like Comics, the podcast devoted to all things comic books in movies and TV. I'm Luke. And I'm Jay. Welcome to the podcast. Today's topic, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, internationally titled The Amazing Spider-Man 2, Rise of Electro. And that is the yeah. title for us here in Australia as well. Awful title. Let's just stick it with <laughs> The Amazing Spider-Man 2. The film stars Andrew Garfield as Peter Parker Spider-Man alongside Emma Stone, Jamie Foxx, Dane DeHaan, Campbell Scott and Sally Field. This is your warning. We will be talking spoilers. The Andrew Garfield films, this one in particular, um, the, 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 you know, the, we're recording this after everyone's seen Spider-Man No Way Home. I that is a good point. That's a good point. Because quick, every the, a quick business it's done. <laughs> oh, a billion dollars <laughs> during COVID. Like a quick asterisk. Spoiler warning for Spider-Man: No Way Home. Just in case, more than likely it will come up. Yeah, people are talking about Andrew Garfield now. Like, oh wow. Um, maybe we were harsh on his movies as Spider-Man. I've always been of the opinion he is a great Spider-Man. The stories of his films just let down the actor rather than him being doing a bad job. Um, this suffered worse in the stories front compared to the first one um, just because of the bloat. That, um, but we'll get to that a bit later. Um, you know, Mark Webb returns as director. Um, we've had Andrew Garfield, Emma Stone, Sally Field in the previous film, and Campbell Scott for playing Richard Parker, the father of Peter, who barely gets a mention in the character in the comics ever. Um, they did yeah. a storyline in the 80s where they may have been uh, traitors to America working for the Russians, um, but they also may have been double agents working for S.H.I.E.L.D. to infiltrate Russia. It's a whole thing. The thing with but, me, we've spied him out. I've always seen it. Yes, he lost his parents young, but his origin is Aunt May, Uncle Ben. It's Peter Parker. Yeah. Radioactive spider, then he becomes Spider Man. So I get the reason why we're getting the parents here. And for, for me, I know them primarily from the Spider Man animated series from the 90s, where from memory, they were agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. I'm pretty yeah. sure that's what they were. They're Campbell Scott, we got him in that first movie. And we do get more of him here. Apparently, there's a deleted scene where he actually acted alongside Andrew Garfield. We never got it in the movie, but apparently they they shot it. Yeah, I've watched it. Um, you could probably find it on YouTube. I haven't looked, but everything's on all, YouTube. All these things. <laughs> if yeah. not, it'll be, if, yeah. it'll it'll be, be available. Somewhere. DVD, Blu-ray, if you've got it, I'm sure it's available there. But that was the whole thing 
I mean, when The Amazing Spider-Man happened, what was 2012? So two years before this movie, it wasn't too long after the Sam Raimi trilogy. No, not too long. Um, Longer than I think people realize. I think it was a good five or six years between them. Which is quite a while, to be fair, but it, it did feel sudden from having... I mean, yes, we got the Nicholas Hammond TV movies back in the 70s, but it felt like Tobey Maguire, Spider-Man, they were the first ones. So you, yeah, right. and we had a whole five, trilogy. We did, but as you say, five, six years between Maguire and Garfield, but it did feel very soon. And, and not just the audience, Sony clearly felt that as well. So that's yeah. why... Garfield's Spider-Man wasn't just another Spider-Man story. It was the untold story. And that's why we're getting so much emphasis on his parents, what they were doing. But by adding them, set up in that first movie. Now, I've done a review. You weren't on that one. I gave that film 3.5 out of 5. Yeah. It's, it's got things to like. It's by no means a perfect movie. The basketball scene is still hard to watch, but the performances, Emma Stone's Gwen Stacy, Andrew Garfield, Peter Parker's Spider-Man, I agree. His Spider-Man is fantastic. More so yeah, than uh, his Peter Parker, who is a bit too cool for school. But in this movie, and we get a lot more Richard Parker, and what we find out, but the whole thing with Spider-Man, it was just, it was a chance accident. He happened to be there taking photos. He randomly gets bit by a spider. It could have been anybody, just happened to be Peter Parker. Now we're in this series of films where it's the untold story and there's more going on. And we find out that the spider, it will only work with Richard Parker. I'm Peter Parker. And anyone who would, if should they have had other siblings, those as well, people genetically uh, related to Richard Parker. But it changes it. Going down. It, it does. It's a, it's a massive departure. And that's the big point. Um, th- that's one of the big problems with these films is everything came through Oscorp. Richard Parker works for Oscorp. He's the one who developed the spiders. It's his DNA he used to create the spiders in the first place, which is why it only will work with himself and Peter. Um, The reasoning for it comes after the fact in in this second film. Um, But Green Goblin... It's Oz, it's Oscorp. Someone working at Oscorp becomes Electro. You know, in the first movie, uh, Dr. Kirk Connors worked for Oscorp. And in the setting up in, for this, they're setting up Rhino, Vulture, Dr. Octopus. Oh, everybody. Everybody is getting all set up. projects already designed and complete for all our purposes all by Oscorp, all in secret. They're just waiting for someone to give these uh, personas to, essentially, um, which is 
And that's the thing with these Sony made the cardinal mistake in terms of setting up a universe, which Universal Movie Monsters did the same thing when they tried their hand with the Mummy reboot. But you don't sacrifice the movie you're making to set up a potential other film. You have to service the movie you're making now first. It has to be able to stand on its own first. Um, It's a problem people have with Quantum of Solace to Daniel Craig. If you watch it in a vacuum without Casino Royale, you're just like, what is this? Why do I care? This doesn't seem to work out at all. It only works when you watch it directly after Casino Royale. Um, The Mummy movie, as I said, they try to set up this whole universal movie universe um, that they've tried to throw so much stuff in. It detracted from the movie we're watching. We're distracting like, no, 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 no. You're not moving this, this plot along. You're bogging down with what else could be out there. Um, and, as, and as I said, there's been a few others. But you really feel it. On this rewatch, you get the entire intro to the movie, which is all the, this is what directly led to the death of the Parkers, you know, him destroying the research and the spiders, dropping off Peter, grabbing his wife, getting on a plane, and they're, 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 we're getting the, the context of like while they're on the run, why they dropped their son off and fled. Then the movie opens and Spider-Man in action before graduation day and stuff happens. You're like, cool, no worries. In that, you get your quick introduction to Max Dillon, but you were, he's only a side thing. We're f- focusing on Peter. Then after like 15 minutes, we're Oscorp. And there's Gwen gets on the, th- we, we open the day with elect- Max Dillon. And then after all that stuff happens, that goes for another like 10 minutes. Then we open and Harry Osborne is visiting. It, the movie like starts four times because they're introducing all of these different elements to, to build something else. And it, it starts to weave itself together in the middle, but you've already given me like multiple cold openings for other films in this film. You're right. It is. It it takes you like an hour for the movie to actually start to put its pace underneath itself. It's doing. It's doing a lot. I mean, this is the film that gives us Felicia Hardy, also known as Black Cat, played by Felicity Jones. Yeah, blank there. Yeah, Felicity Jones. We saw her in Rogue One. They don't actually refer to her as Felicia Hardy, just Felicia, but we know that that's who it is. So there is so much world building going on introduction of characters you mentioned it seemed like such a long time ago now you mentioned quantum of solace and how yeah. that fits with casino Royale. the big issue with that movie or what it suffered from is that it was heading into a writer strike and yeah. the movie or the scripts that they shot wasn't ready but they just had to go of it because they were going to miss their opportunity. So much was happening with Garfield, Spider-Man around the time of this movie, after this movie. And remember, the 
the Sony Pictures hacks. Can you remember yeah. that? Emails yeah. and everything were put online, potential projects. And unfortunately, Garfield Spider-Man films or potential films, spin-offs, was a casualty of that. But with this movie, it received mixed reviews from critics and audiences with praise for the special effects, chemistry between Stone and Garfield, the action scenes and Hans Zimmer's musical score, although the script and length received criticism. Fox's portrayal of Max Dillon Electro was polarizing. The movie did gross 709 million worldwide, making it the ninth highest grossing film of 2014, but the lowest grossing live action Spider-Man film to date. Now you've mentioned the length of this movie already. It is 142 minutes. This is longer than any previous Spider-Man film until Spider-Man No Way Home. The Amazing Spider-Man series was originally intended to continue with two sequels and several spin-offs, most notably films centered on Venom and The Sinister Six. Due to conflicts between the studio and Garfield and, and the Sony Pictures hack that I mentioned, all subsequent installments were cancelled and a new iteration of the character portrayed by Tom Holland in the MCU, beginning with Captain America Civil War. The planned spin-offs were repurposed for a timeline separate from the Amazing Spider-Man continuity and the MCU, beginning with Venom in 2018. There is so much speculation online, and we've given the spoiler warning for Amazing Spider-Man 2 and Spider-Man No Way Home. After all these years, Andrew Garfield is back. And for me personally, I loved seeing him back. And there's a lot of speculation slash rumors online that Andrew Garfield could be the Spider-Man in the Venom, Morbius, Craven the Hunter spin-off films. Yeah, which I'm all game for. Uh, I'm all game for because... Sony have proven, unfortunately, time and time again, they don't know how to properly uh, build a universe in and of themselves without shooting themselves in the foot. Uh, bringing up Venom. First Venom, supposed to be R-rated. They cut it down to M or MA. Um, to I mean, try and gain a large sure audience. It's an M. Both, both Venom and Let There Be Carnage are M's here in Australia. Yeah. Um, and that was a, something done late in production. I mean, they had already shot a bunch of stuff for the first Venom when that was supposed to be R-rated. You know, there was supposed to be blood and gore and violence. You were supposed to get Carnage set um, in actually active in that first one, if not with the symbiote at least as Cletus Cassidy, the serial killer. In fact, I think the reports I heard was it was in a full hour of footage of him and like Eddie being the journalist, helping the cops to capture him. Hence the post credit scene in that movie. Um, and then you watch let there be carnage and it's quite just, it's there. It's a, it's a down step from the first film. Uh, Morbius, I have to say, does look intriguing. 
I'm interested to see what they do with that. There is some more reshoots going on with that yes. one. Yes. Well, I was going to say, I mean, that movie, it was supposed to be out January. And now they've pushed it until April 1st. Yeah. Maybe um, it's COVID related. Or maybe they're doing some reshoots with Andrew Garfield. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Which we can hope. Because the thing is, from memory, there was Venom, which was always on there. The Sinister Six film was also going to get a first, a Silver Sable movie itself and a Black Cat film, which was then combined into a single movie called, I think, Silver and Black. Terrible. Terrible title. But I... I heard that as well. What we're, what we're potentially going to get in future, we can get to that later on. And some of the things that they did set up in this second movie, but never actually went anywhere. We can do that a little bit later on. Yeah. But back to this movie. Well, um, the box office, like, you know, I mentioned that it actually, you know, it, it did okay. Successful. It actually, I mean, it made 709 million. The budget, was 293 million. So that is the movie. So they've made the movie for 293 million, right? But they didn't stop there because then they spent an additional marketing budget of 190 million. So so now all of a sudden the box office or well the cost of the movie is getting a lot closer to that 709 million that it made but they were clearly still confident enough but we all know it stopped with this movie yeah and i remember i remember it was during production i'd heard the rumors of how many things they're cramming in or if it was just once that first trailer dropped and things started to come out and my um, immediate thought was like oh too many villains um Spider-Man 3 with Tobey Maguire. Famously, they didn't want Venom in that one. Uh, Sam Raimi was like, no, 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 I can't. I've got Harry Osborn, Green Goblin in this one. I've got Sandman. I don't have space for a third film. Plus, this, as we discussed when I was making the first Spider-Man, I'm doing the first, I think his plan was doing like the first 10 apps, 10 issues, which is like he was building himself to Vulture and Electro and stuff because those are all in the early issues of Amazing Spider-Man. But he was doing 60 Spider-Man. Venom didn't come in until issue 300. Honestly, I did I did a recent rewatch of the Raimi films. One, two, still hold up. Like, so good. And then the third one, I feel like I get tricked each time because... It's actually okay. It is actually okay until Venom. Then the yeah. whole thing derails. You've you're like Peter Parker becomes a dick. He's emo Parker. It's I don't know. It just that for me is where it goes off the rails completely. Sandman, New Goblin. It ties into that first film. There's your third film. There's your trilogy. But as you say, they wanted Venom, so we had to include venom yeah and that's the thing of a bloat 
the reason why Marvel have started with individual films and build up to team movies that start to introduce more individual films that build into other team movies and it starts to get all wiggly and spilled, it's all momentum because you have to know who a person is first. You can bring a new character into a someone else's character in the film first and then later on you don't need to do an origin or you can do a full origin, but you get a taste of the character because you're doing origin work where you first use them and then you're getting a bit more context in their own film. But whenever you do a movie, sequels included, you don't just do an origin for whatever your main character is or for the sequel, you don't need to do the origin main character, but you do need to do an origin of the antagonist. If you do multiple villains, you now have to do multiple origins. So of however many people you introduce, this film tried to introduce us to like six people. That is too many to do in a single film. Yeah, you, that's that's where your bloat is. You're introducing I mean, Harry Osborn. Also, yeah. they sped him to Green Goblin. Like his father lived long enough to sire a child, raise him to adulthood, and build a multi-billion-dollar company. I mean, what he I come to a disease. What I got from and the they movie. Sped him through that, but I think yeah, I think ninety minutes. The disease, I think, is is more progressive in him than his dad experienced. That's what I got from it. It seems to be attacking his body a much quicker rate. Okay, let's let's talk Mark Webb, the director. So he's the guy that directed 500 Days of Summer. And a bunch of music videos. Yes. <laughs> okay, that was his first film. And then his second film was The Amazing Spider-Man. His third film being this one. When discussing the sequel, he explained he wanted to create a universe that can withstand and anticipate future storylines while also working in and of itself for one movie. You've touched on it already. So at around one hour, three minutes, when Harry accesses his father's archive, you can see the file names Ravencroft, Dr. Connors, Dr. Connors, Dr. Morbius, and Venom Storage 7U. Ravencroft is the asylum scene later in the film. Dr. Dirk Connors is the lizard from the first film. Dr. Michael Morbius is a Spider-Man villain with vampire-like attributes, and Venom, Spider-Man's demented Lookalike, whose story was filmed in Spider-Man 3 in 2007. That's a lot of setup. That is a lot of setup. And I get that with this sequel, he was trying to tell a movie that can play as a standalone or can also set up all these other things. But, I mean, I've got to be honest, I've never noticed Venom Storage 7U, but everything else, like with... We get the introduction of Alexi, who will go on to be... Rhino. That it's the only live action interpretation we've had of Rhino. And with a passion, I can say I hate it. I absolutely hate the big mechanical rhino suit. But what yeah. we're getting a lot of, sometimes the portrayal of Spider-Man, but definitely with the villains, it's the ultimate comics. 
which isn't yeah. a thing anymore. But so many of the villains are linked to their ultimate origins, if you're familiar with the comics. Which I am intimately. I have the entire run. I have read all of them. Uh, but the big, the other big thing is, on top of all the introduction of that stuff, you have the Richard Parker storyline that also sideswipes this movie halfway through um where peter is like what's roosevelt what's to do with my my father i need to know and then he finds his dad's secret lab in a railway abandoned railway station it's a whole thing that was actually even longer that cut scene with his father interacting with fully grown peter later on the movie that whole storyline actually went like another 20 minutes that they cut out that's almost three hours. Yeah. Um, now, when you do something like that in a film, you know, you've introduced the setup, which is your intro. You bring it in again in the middle of the movie, which is after Harry has asked for his blood. So this is the answer. <laughs> like, and that's where Spider-Man will, says will... no, and he's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> so surprised. Yeah. yeah uh, yet. Which, which I find I always even now on this rewatch I'm like he answered him too quickly. If he'd listened to him, if he'd said I'll try and track down Spider Man, and then found the thing, he could have said, "Look, I actually happen to know exactly why it worked. It won't work for you. Your genetics don't match. Like you may have been able to do more with this, but yeah. because but all of that stuff leads." Nowhere. He finds his father's research. He's already answered that he's not giving the blood. So it's not like he gets this information and then goes to Harry and says, sorry, you can't, my blood. It's dangerous. It's not going to work. So it, because it's supposed to lead to after, again, spoilers, Gwen's death, when he's mourning, his father rocks up. And there's a bunch of other investigative stuff that went in the middle of here as well. Once you remove the end point of what wraps up that story, you needed to remove everything else related to it. You needed to remove the, the intro to your film. You needed to re remove the whole subway thing. That saves you a ton of runtime. You could have spent more time than developing story for Harry and how increasingly desperate he's coming and how far is his Tell us, the audience, well, how fast is this virus? Is this uh, condition rap, uh, worsening? I've got no timeline. His father's, like, at least in his mid-40s. Yeah. Like, he's only 20 years old. You give us an actual age of him. He's 20. Why is it so much advancing so much faster than him? Murner? You didn't really give us any Yeah, I, I agree. Yeah, it's never... It's never explained we're just led to assume that it's progressive or it's progressing rapidly or quicker than how it affected his dad and his dad harry osborne played by chris cooper who i yeah. felt in that first movie was just wasted but i guess it fit the story they were telling if everything's after the fact norman osborne has been and gone he wasn't the goblin Cooper comes back in a uncredited role in this film, but I think they were planning on using him again 
in later films. But I guess we have it, what they do sell well, and, and this is a lot credited to Andrew Garfield and also Dane DeHaan. We didn't get Harry Osborne in that first movie. No mention of him, just two years prior. Yet this film comes out and these two actors together, for me, there's that awkward interaction. Parker's about to leave. Harry says something and then they're at the water skimming rocks. And you just buy, or I bought in that moment that, yeah, these are friends since childhood and they've got a good chemistry together. So I did think the actors sold their relationship. I mean, yes, yeah. there's the bit between Goblin and Spider-Man and Age of Blood, I'm not going to give it. But Parker and Harry, I felt like that relationship was conveyed very well. Like these guys do have a relationship. And okay, so I can, I can go with it. Even though that first movie didn't have Harry as a character, He's somebody that is known since he was like 10 years old. So yeah, that's same. Tracked. I I found that to work really well. And I, that's why I think it's so annoying that they knowing they were planning a third film plus all these spin-offs, I don't see the reason why you needed to speed him into the suit. You could have still had him. I can't get Spider-Man's blood, fine, and start looking for other research, maybe getting more and more desperate and going more and more out there, infecting people with stuff to see how it operates. Like that's yeah, where you I get agree. your scorpion and vulture. It would have been way. a more interesting, mm. a slower burn, and you wouldn't have eaten up runtime in this getting there. It's a better way of doing it because, yeah, when they made and released this movie, it was part two of something bigger. They were yeah. going to be making more. So I agree, it does feel feel rushed but again as before we move on andrew garfield as an actor in films in general solid he's yeah. very good and he was really good as spider-man and i do feel like i do need to make that distinction because his peter parker does seem too cool for school he's got his skateboard I don't know. There's just something about him where, I mean, they're not trying. I mean, I said with the villains, they're not trying to do 60s Spider-Man. We got that with the basis of the Raimi films. Yeah. They're leaning more into Ultimate Spider-Man. Those comics came out in, what, early 2000s? So yeah, early 2000s more... and ran until uh, actually right around... I think I think eventually they wrapped up the universe. They wrapped up the universe for the Secret Wars event that combined the Ultimate Universe and amalgamated it into the main six. Right, and they universe. kept Miles, and he's Miles Morales. He's still web swinging. Yeah, but yeah, okay, yeah. But they that's what this film feels like. That's what this Peter Parker Spider Man feels like. It, it is the version, the more modernized version from the Ultimate Comics. Whenever Andrew Garfield is Spider-Man, like he is so much better than the films that he's in. Yeah. He's Spider-Man for me, pitch perfect, better than Maguire, better than Tom Holland. Like he is so good at Spider-Man. And I think just that his build as well, like he's, he's tall. I don't know, there's something about the look of his Spider-Man 
Like Tom Holland's a shorter guy, you know, so is Tobey Maguire. I just feel like with Garfield Spider-Man, they have nailed the look. They've changed the costume from the first film to this film. It's a lot more comic accurate. And until the closing scene of No Way Home, which although it was a nighttime shot, I thought this this suit from Amazing Spider-Man 2 was the best live-action adaption of the suit. I think maybe they're going to pull something off with the next Tom Holland costume, but with this movie, it is the best-looking Spider-Man. The special effects, the web-swinging, even though the Holland films came after, nothing the MCU have given us, for me, compares with what we get in these Mark Webb Spider-Man films for web-swinging. Yeah, there's actually a, a funny story to how, why it works so well. Um, I've actually watched some of the people, special effects supervisors break down their process. The reason I think this one has aged so well in that department and been so much more revolutionary than either Maguire or Holland is they gave a little bit extra material to his costume. It helps with his frame but they didn't make it so ridiculously skin tight that it looks painted on. The reason yes. they did that is so um, when they do, which is that opening shot when you see him falling through the skyline, yep. you get fabric ripples because you it's do. not skin tight. Yes. And because of that, he doesn't look flat. He looks more dynamic because the suit is allowed to ripple. It's not stretched so tight. It's like a second skin. It's only because they thought really hard about how to convey that properly um, that they, and they did a whole cloth simulation specifically for his costume when it comes to the special effects to get that to work correctly. Um, now, cause you always think, and it looks pristine when you see the costume there unwrinkled, like museum pose kind of thing. Like, Oh, that's what a hero is supposed to look like. But our brains are aware, like, even if you're in skin-tight spandex, if you bend over, it will crease somewhere. Why? Because our skin creases somewhere. Um, and that's something maybe we'll get now with the Holland next next appearance because he has got a more homemade costume because it's I'm not so, some special so, high-tech fabric yes. from Tony Stark. I'm so happy for that, for that costume and back... Back to basics. Yeah, but yeah, even the uh, the the large eye lenses, very uh, uh, Mark Bagley, who was the a long time comic book artist on Spider Man yeah. in the main universe, but all through the Ultimate Comics universe, he drew it and he drew it that way. Uh, and Spider Man's always looked more lanky than muscular because it's supposed to be a skinny skinny kid who got bit. And he doesn't build up that much muscle because he's a teenager he's still thickening out kind of thing um but yeah it is i do, depending on what run you read of spider-man peter parker can be cool um you know there is supposed to be a, especially that early stan lee stuff he's actually really overly confident when he first goes to college and stuff and meets people yeah i mean on the um, verge of being a bit of a actually, dick. Like, it's pretty yeah, in fact, arrogant. He, he, once he becomes 
Spider-Man, he actually starts taking time to bully Flash Thompson, his bully. It's not going the other way around. He doesn't have that. He hasn't become aware yet. He's that nerdy kid who now has power. And he's like, what's what's Flash going to do? He doesn't overtly physically bully Flash, but he uses his his intellect and his wit to make him look like an idiot and like offbeat comments and that kind of thing. He's like you said, he comes across like a dick, but there is also suave Peter Parker as he, as he gets a bit more humbled towards his college years when he first interacts with like Harry Osborne and that kind of thing. It just depends on the interpretation you read and how you yourself interpret it. I said, he can come across over the top, but and that's also going to be a thing when you cast like a, good-looking actor like Andrew Garfield, there's going to be an unfortunate amount of charisma he's going to carry that makes him seem cooler. Because um, if you I mean, yeah, him, that's that's fair. I mean, he yeah, if you, you see him, you don't see him interact with many people who's not Aunt May, Harry, or Gwen in either of his films. You see him be a dick to Flash, which again is very on brand for the the comics if you go back and read the original Stan Lee stuff, but you don't see any interaction, so it's hard to say what kind of personality as a lot, he's a lot more Spider-Man as Peter Parker than he is a, like a, a different personality. That's a good point. Maybe, yes, that's a maybe good point, more actually. realistic, but when he you know he gets broken in this, and the Spider-Man 3 would have been able to show you how does that affect him. It is a massive thing in the comics. It yeah. happens issue 121 of the original run. We're at currently up to issue like, I think we're up to issue eight or 900 in the comics. I can't even remember specifically. If we're not at 900, we're rapidly approaching. So most of Spider-Man's comic book career has been in the aftermath of this tragic death of his love. Um, which again, spoilers, we get in this film, which he's, you know, he, it says he's been inactive for five months at the end, uh, at the end of the movie. That's how devastated he was. He did nothing for five months. He was so crushed. Again, spoilers for no mate home. He does. Andrew Garfield does explain like he tried to continue on and he was struggling. And I really want to see that that version of the Spider-Man, like yeah. someone who's just kind of going through the motions, but is well, he doing it with the fun he had anymore? Well, he says, doesn't he, that he stopped pulling his punches as much. Yeah. That's something like, Garfield says in No Way Home. Now, you mentioned Gwen Stacy was killed in Amazing Spider-Man issue 121. Yeah. At around the two-hour mark of this film, when Gwen dies, the clock tower's hand spins rapidly landing on 121 there yeah. you go they know what they're doing they've got that reference in there but Gwen Stacy of course played by Emma Stone and phenomenal is probably so a good, good word to use both films like she she is so good I was reading upon it in preparation for this you know the bit where Peter he uses webs, a hand is stuck to the bonnet of the car. Yeah. The police are there, and Gwen calls out Peter as he's leaving. That was 
Emma Stone accidentally saying Peter, where he's in the script, it was Spider-Man. But they felt like, or they, he, the director, felt that it was such a genuine mistake. And Emma Stone didn't break character. They included it in the film. But it was actually a mistake on her part. Yeah, but, but it this, works so it perfectly. does. It does. Like you buy their relationship. And I know on the back of that first movie, Maguire and Stone were in an actual relationship. I don't think they were around about the time of this movie, but they it were was on that first one. after this. It was after this that they broke up. Right. Okay. But their but chemistry is incredible. Part. Yeah. Um, and she's so effortless with her the character anyway. Never mind about the chemistry she has with Garfield. Um, you know, everyone she shares the scene with, she's like stealing all the like attention. She's fantastic, um, and everything about her just seems so genuine. I mean, yeah. it's it's hard to see where Emma Stone stops and Gwen Stacy begins. I mean, yeah. the the speech at the graduation was actually written by Emma Stone. She wrote yeah. that speech for her character. Yeah. And we get it again in the ending. You know, you're talking about Spider-Man no more. Yeah. Yeah. yeah like book like bookends the film. Um, yeah. Essentially. But it works brilliantly. She's again, like I said, effortless. She's actually Peter's intellectual like peer. She's a little bit quicker on the uptake than he is. Um, she's helped solve both of the problems he has at the end of the movie. Like he can't use his webbing because they keep shorting because of Electro. She's like, you should need, why don't you just magnetize him, you idiot? Like she, that's her soul. Yeah. And also I know how to fix the grid because I've looked at the schematics because I work for the company who built it. You're a moron. I'm going to solve it. So you need so it me makes, there. Don't web me to yeah. the front of a car. It makes sense for her to be there, but he's trying to keep out of danger. The promise he made to her dad, Captain Stacy. Again, Dennis Levy comes back uncredited in this film, but we get to see him again. As a ghost. Yeah. We get to see him again. But the thing with Gwen, I mean, ultimately she dies and it's horrific. Yeah. She, yeah. It's yeah. horrific. It, it really is because he tries everything he can to save her. But yeah, I remember. But it, it, it's one of those films where, of course, he's going to save her. We had yeah. read the comics previously, but still watching it in a film, when she actually dies, I was like, oh shit, like, wow. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense that, of course, you know, Gwen Stacy does die. I mean, the idea in the films beyond this one was to have. Gwen Stacy was to have Mary Jane Watson and they'd even cast her, Shailene Woodley. There's even a scene in this movie where you can see the actress, where you can actually see her. It's right Yeah, because they actually introduced the character. That's another thing that got cut. That's another origin that they were going to insert into this already overbloated film. But they decided to cut it because they thought that it was too bloated, I guess. But like all films... Like all films, I mean, this movie had many drafts, but an alternate unused draft of the screenplay had Gwen surviving Spider-Man's climatic showdown with the Goblin. 
She's critically injured. However, in order to save her life, Spider-Man performs an emergency transfusion using his own blood as a side effect. This act endows her with powers similar to his. The final scene was Gwen in her Spider-Gwen costume, now calling herself the White Widow, joining Spider-Man's fight against the Rhino. This duly impresses her three younger brothers who happen to be looking on, although they're oblivious to her secret identity. Ultimately, this draft was rewritten to include Gwen's death scene and funeral. Yeah, at which... When the movie was trailer came out, I'm like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, then they're, they're dating in real life. The chemistry is so phenomenal. He, you know, Gwen Stacy was a long, large part of the comics for his early career. They're not going to kill her off in a second movie. That's a third movie thing. There's no way you do it off to get it done in movie number two. Like we love the character, but we haven't built quite enough emotional investment for her death to mean something. Then I'm there, opening night, took my nephew. He was really excited to see it. And then they're, they're on the clock tower. And my brain immediately is like, oh, my God, they're going to kill her. Yeah. <laughs> like, I just figured it out. And every time I watch, for all the criticisms we've said of everything else in the movie, like trying to do too many things for a single film, the way they handle a death is actually really well done. The uh, the desperate fight uh, with between Spider-Man and Goblin. Um, the, oh, she's about to fall. No, she's okay. He gets her. Oh, she's going to fall. He gets her again. Oh, now he's, it's all really, it all just, because he's, we've, like you said, he's the hero. And we can see he's, he's got this. He's got this. She's going to be fine. It All it does is build up tension of like, no, 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 no. And you're going to say, no, she's, she's going to survive. There's no way they kill her. And then it's the music they use is so powerful as they anchor and it really anchors the scene as he's time slows down, as he webs out to try and catch her. And you're like, oh, please work. You know, even, even though I know how it ends, I'm watching it going, please work, please work. Please don't let this be happening. And yeah, every single time it, it affects me the same way. Um, you know, it, it breaks my heart because just like you're supposed to feel something great was taken away. It, it, we didn't know it was going to be more Andrew Garfield movies or <laughs> is it? Yeah. But definitely, uh, you know, as of this point, it was more Andrew Garfield Spider-Man movies, but it was also the, the relationship, you know, what Gwen Stacy as a person would have accomplished should this had not happened to her and yeah you feel it every time you watch this movie it's really well done it, um, it is i mean you know like i've you know the i've just you know said what one of the unused drafts of the screenplay was going to be this is the right ending this is yeah. the right ending would i have liked to have seen more emma stone as gwen stacy of course but this was the right way to to end this movie, and you're right, it just it packs a a punch every time. And with everything that's going on with all these, you know, No Way Home, uh, 
Multiverse of Madness, who knows? We could see Emma Stone again and actually see her, see her as, I mean, Spider-Gwen in the comics, but they call her Spider-Woman. I don't know about why. Hey, go you know. Spider. Yeah, go Spider. I, I've never, I don't like any of them, to be honest. But White Widow, that's kind of what we're getting with Elena in yeah. Black Widow. Oh, who knows? But White Widow <laughs> doesn't quite have the same ring to it. I mean, Jamie Foxx, who talks about him as Electro. I mean, I guess the approach to his character, his origin, you get a lot of Michelle Pfeiffer as Selena Kyle in Batman Begins. Yeah, he, you do. He's kind of like, he's a nerdy type, balding. Uh, he's got the gap between Comb his teeth. Over. He gets superpowers. It fixes his fixes teeth. Fixes his teeth. <laughs> but, I, mean, I mean, like Garfield, he's in No Way Home playing Electro now with a full head of hair for some reason as well. I guess his yeah. powers and appearance look different in the in the MCU. But I always struggled with Electro in this film, if I'm honest. Jamie Foxx, as a performer, I like him, but not in this film. And he's better in No Way Home. Yeah. Really, yeah, but he, um, not here. Yeah, they did... They changed up the the look of the character massively from the comics. They changed his origin. In the comics, he's actually just like original Max Dillon origin is he was a just a tradie who worked for the power company who was fixing lines that got hit by lightning. And that's how he got his powers. Real simple. Obviously, super unrealistic as well. Although I don't know if being bit by genetically engineered electric eels while holding an electric cable would work. <laughs> I mean, I mean, but it's oh, more plausible than just getting hit by lightning while holding a lightning cable, be, uh, Is a it power though? cable, because that must happen. <laughs> that has actually happened in real life to many well, I suppose, people who work uh, for electric companies, I and none of them have exhibited electrical powers. But also, when he first, I've always thought it, and I thought it again when I'm watching it this time, when he when he first is his powers manifest and he stumbles into a Times Square with the dark hoodie and the eyes glowing so vehemently, and he's using like electric powers. My brain every single time is like, and for Palpatine, ah, said, for yes. Palpatine. I can't <laughs> help but see it. Yeah, yeah. Like, like if, if the only thing missing is him screaming unlimited power. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, on that, Ultimate Comics, again, that's the version of the character we're getting here. In the comics, he was a leather-clad supervillain. That's very close to what we get in this movie. It wasn't until No Way Home he had the, at least momentarily, the, the yellow lightning star on his face. Yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, Electro, it's him. It's Green Goblin in this film. Uh, Dane DeHaan, you know, he's good. It's good as Harry, they do well to establish the the relationship, but again, it's another ultimate take on, on the character. What I did find interesting, several scenes involving Dahan were cut due to the disturbing and intense nature of the scenes. Have you heard about any of this? I knew that he some of his stuff had been cut. I had assumed it had been due to time constraints and them again showing 
you know what would be character development for him before no, he went goblin it's um it got a bit too intense i think for some younger <laughs> younger audiences so these include harry drinking and speeding while the girl he is on a date with begs him to slow down several scenes in which felicia and harry bond and romantic feelings between the two are implied you get that moment towards the end where she gives him a longing look and it's and she's giving him inside information to help him. And I thought, is she trying to help him to get ahead? But according to this, there was some scenes where they were developing a relationship that we never saw. Yeah. yeah. I've always taken it though that look as um her consciousness of like, I want to help him, as you would want to like, oh, some that person needs help, like more empathy than. Yeah, longing. so that's that's how I took it as well. But apparently, they were actually off camera having a relationship. There's an extended version of Harry's transformation into the Green Goblin, including his teeth growing and shattering, and his nails growing into claws. I mean, that is very Ultimate Comic Spider-Man, isn't it? Not quite, because in the Ultimate Comics, Norman Osborn's Green Goblin. And he uses the uh, concentrated version of the uh, the Oscorp serum that was given to the spider to make it super that bites Peter. So when he gets oh, it, it's too, right. it's too pure and he turns goblin and he can't turn back. And that's what we actually see in the the Into the Spider-Verse animated film with Miles, that yes. version of the Green Goblin. That's actually spot on. But I guess uh, what the same goblin because he has like fire powers. He doesn't yeah, throw bombs. That's right. He has fire it, powers. It's Harry of... is actually hobgoblin because of it, like passing down to him. No, it's all the guys, isn't it? No, there's another guy in the '90s animated series. Mark Campbell voiced hobgoblin. But anyway, there's there's lots. But of... in the Ultimate Comics, that's what they did. Oh, okay. Harry did... was hobgoblin, not Green Goblin. So many goblins, but. I guess transforming, not quite hulking out, but transforming is more ultimate than the standard 616 comics. Yeah. The Green Goblin, oh, this is more that we didn't say. The Green Goblin (laughs) showing himself to Felicia, who is in the building during the transformation and sparing her life. In this scene, the Goblin kills Menkin and proceeds to destroy the Oscorp building we're not really talked about menkin yet the goblin cutting the web that gwen is holding on to which leads to her death alternate versions of gwen's death also include the goblin fatally stabbing her and breaking her neck with his bare hands there you go some more involved where is how it plays out in the film peter does the best everything of everything they put forward yeah he does but in the film, Peter does everything he can to save Gwen. He just do- doesn't dies. have enough time and space. Like, I need the ground. I need to be higher. I need us both to be higher up. Well, it initially, it eventually serves us here in the future uh, for what we've had without giving spoilers to the context of his little redemption in No Way Home. But I mean, we've given the spoiler warning, to be fair, a couple of times, I think. Yeah, but he... <laughs> Tom Holland, Spider-Man, MJ's like thrown off. He jumps off the scaffolding on the Statue of Liberty to catch her, but is intercepted by Willem Dafoe, Green Goblin. So Andrew Garfield, Spider-Man, jumps down, 
webs her to him and then webs up and lands with her in his arms, having learned what he sh- probably should have done with Gwen. But that's the thing. He made the mistake and now he knows how to fix it. And that's his redemption. And again, this, this is the serving like, but in his desperation in the moment, that's not what he was thinking. He's, he's you know, you've seen it both amazing Spider-Man movies. He uses his webbing to do everything. Uh, turn off a light switch, close the door to his closet, reach for his phone. He's going to become super dependent on it. It's like, it's such a normal thing for him to do. Um, but so of course he naturally thinks like, I'll oh, just web her and I'll stop myself right here. There's an elastic, uh, an uh, elasticity quality to his webbing that they've shown over and over again that should cushion the kinetic force so it's not too jarring for her. Um, but unfortunately, yeah, she he doesn't have enough space yeah. by like like half a meter maybe. Like the way she lands, how far her head is, the neck, yeah, it's hmm. Mm. But it's the story. Yeah. Like we've we know, like we knew going into these new Spider-Man films how their relationship ends. And I guess that's what they had to to work with like what do we do do we go in a new direction or do we stick to the source material and they obviously stuck to the source material i mentioned before donald menkin played by colm fure he's oscorp's vice president and head of the board so he's the one that's giving harry a hard time yeah he's sinister business guy that's him that's him (laughs) okay let's um we mentioned Rhino already. Alexi, played by Paul Giamatti. Really? Oh, holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> holy shit. I, I hate to say it, but he's horrible. <laughs> it really is. And I, I'm conflicted. Bad. I'm so conflicted, His, right? The he's... way he looks is stupid. <laughs> A Russian hired killer for the Russian mafia who allies with Harry and receives a massive, well-armored, robotic, rhino-like suit. So it's interesting. It does, especially when it's on all fours. But it's interesting because earlier in the film, I think it's one of the only times you've had Spider-Man go up against a villain in live action before they were a supervillain. Yeah. I think this film is the first time they've done that. Yeah, everyone else becomes a villain. Uh, and so then has, fights by their accident. And then, yeah. Whereas we Rather. get him, you know, the, <laughs> the yeah, he's, always a, he, he's always a scumbag. Always <laughs> a bad one. And, and you've said it, like, the accent is just so hammy and over the top. And that's what Giamatti liked about it. He liked the opportunity to be, like, really big with his with his performance. But it, it's awful. It is yeah. so awful. And in No Way Home, when Garfield references Rhino, I'm like, oh my word, I thought we'd I thought we'd left that behind. But I need to say this though, and you've said it already that Parker stops being Spider-Man for five months after the loss of Gwen Stacy. When Rhino comes back and the police aren't enough, and that young boy wearing the Spider-Man costume, and he puts on the mask. Now, this, for me, is such an imperfect movie. It really is. It's a a mess of a movie with some really 
bright sparks. We talked about Garfield, Stone, the Spider-Man in action. There's a lot of good things to say about this film. Although I hate this version of Rhino, when the young boy is there and Spider-Man comes back, it just works for me. It really does work for me. It was, even though we're getting the big visual of Rhino, he's on all fours. Oh, no, he's not on all fours at that point. He's stood up, he's shooting at the police. The boy goes to stand up to him. There's not another Spider-Man, so he's going to be Spider-Man. And it was just, it was such, for me, a low-key way of having Spider-Man to return, but on such an intimate level. And the kid goes back to his mum, and Spider-Man's back. And I thought it was fantastic. But again, still hating everything about the rhino. But whenever Garfield is Spider-Man, he nails it. And in that moment, for that to be the last scene of the film, it was just such a good moment. It reminded me of the scene in Spider-Man 2 with Maguire, where his mask's off, he's fighting Dr. Octopus, and people hold him and save him on the train. Yeah. And I got, I got that a similar feeling to that from the ending of this movie. Yeah, it's really well done. Um, it's funny with the rhino, the, even the design of the the costume's terrible. Like he's way too low in it. It should be high in the Ultimate Comics. It was still a more of a mechanical suit. Um, although the the helmet covered his face, but it was a helmet over his face. Whereas this is like a tank that runs on all fours. It's just a silly idea rather than I think, I think it was like jet, like a jet pack that helped boost the speed of the ultimate comics one. But that moment's perfect. And, you know, it's a kid that he saved earlier on in the movie from bullies, nothing world changing, just he was being bullied because he was a nerdy science kid, just like Peter. Peter gets scares off the bullies, helps him repair his little project and like talks to him about it because he understands it because he's a science nerd as well. Um, and like it's that personal interaction, which very Superman in terms of the interaction with the person he saves, but also very Spider-Man for the the, the scientific aspect and the like the insp- the ways Spider-Man doesn't know he's inspirational is he's just being himself in that moment he's like oh my god you built this this is awesome um yeah it's i want more andrew garfield spider-man i want i want it but i want it written with the same attention that we got the the moments with him and gwen the moments with him and harry before any of the problems um moments like him breaking him aunt may breaking down because she doesn't want to tell him about the sort of the what the official story of her father his father is in the bedroom because he really wants to know what his father is as much as i crap on that whole detour of the movie because it got it ultimately leads nowhere the performances between sally field and andrew garfield are really great because she's a really good aunt may they don't give her a lot to do but she's still is an emo- is the emotional anchor for Peter as she always is in the comics as well as Marissa Tomei is to Tom Holland in the movies. Um, she's such an important character and 
it's a shame because as I said, I, I want more. Um, yeah, all I'm of with the you. Spider-Man stuff I'm with you. is yeah. brilliant. All of the personal character details are brilliant. You just need to fit, you just need to fix the villain side and keep it keep it succinct and on point. Um scale it back. As- scale it back. I mean it, if yeah, I mean we need to see what's gonna happen. I don't think No Way Home is going to be the last time we see Garfield as Spider-Man. It's going to happen again. I just worry that they're just going to put him in a shit Venom sequel. I don't know. We'll just have to... That's, that's, that's what I don't want. No, me too. I don't, yeah. want, I, I don't, I don't want him to be only in Venom movies. Um, I'd rather you do an Amazing Spider-Man 3 and introduce Venom in there. As a bridge, Venom being the current series that he comes over into a Spider-Man movie rather than Spider-Man going over into a yeah, Venom that's movie. good. Yeah, that could be that could be which is also more traditional. Approach. Him coming in as a as a villain essentially yeah. as a as a foil to Spider-Man, which is again more comic accurate. Um, but we just get Abby Arrowed away from him. <laughs> he doesn't away. know what he's doing. He's we just... the reason why we got. Venom in the Sam Raimi movies, and he's the reason why Venom got cut down from R rating to M. Um, like you need Mark Webb seems to know what he's doing. I don't know if they'd get him back to direct, but you need the kind of a care and attention that the MCU writers have done for the Holland Sony movies. Um, you need I mean, I don't know how responsible Webb is, but Spider-Man in his films looks better than Spider-Man anywhere else. The best-looking yeah. Spider-Man is in his films. Let's just go back to May Parker because I feel like we were just talking, or you were just talking about it there. We don't really talked about it a lot. I mean, Sally Field, we all know Sally Field. For me, growing up, she was in Mrs. Doubtfire. I know she's done a lot more than that, but I knew her primarily from that film. Have you heard what she's had to say? about this film no this is what she had to say and this was a 2016 appearance on the howard stern show she said that it's really hard to find a three-dimensional character obviously talking about this film and you work it as much as you can but you can't put 10 pounds of shit in a five pound bag <laughs> she did not have a good time on these movies. <laughs> so I don't know yeah. if we either recast Aunt May or get somebody else yeah. or, or just not just have say, a altogether show. Or you just say, like, in the intervening years between two and three, she died because of her advanced age. So I, I don't know why she had such a hard time. Or, I mean, maybe this type of movie was too low brow for her, but it. You, Again, not, she's not given a lot. She she's not, but what she does do, though. scenes with Andrew. And she does well. I think she it's does all very voiced. well. I'm doing nursing training, and then you see her during the blackout. She's in the hospital. It was a good way of like, bringing back that character in the in the final fight because she was there helping at the hospital. And I know he's only briefly in this, more so in the first one, Martin Sheen as Ben Parker, I thought was great. Yeah, um, I, that actually reminds me of the whole 
while she's in the hospital scene. They do this really weird thing, which I'd forgotten about completely until I did, did this rewatch. With his fight with Electro at the power station, they try to give you a ticking clock. And it's two airliners flying at each other. And they go, they're going to crash into each other in four and a half minutes. They can't read that each other's there. Not how airplane um, avionics work, by the way. The airplanes themselves have radar that would warn them that there's another plane in the general vicinity. But that's beside the point. But when they introduce it, I'm like, why are, they why are we spending so much time around this plane? What's going on? And then they go, they're on the same heading. They're going to crash in four and a half minutes. Start the clock. And Electro and Spider-Man do their fight. There's the briefest of glimpses uh, just cuts back to the plane and then back to it. I'm like, doesn't service at all. There's no, no way for yeah, me to yeah. know how much yeah. time is running because the, we don't see them looking at a clock and seeing what the time countdown is because it's a stop clock, not a digital one. It's an analog one. So four minutes, I don't know how many times it's gone around that rotation. I get the idea of introducing the clock. So it, there's, there's a time sensitive element to his fight with Electro. It doesn't land. I mean, it's a good point. I mean, you're probably right in what you're saying there. Where I like the it, planes. It, it, is, <laughs> it is a ticking clock, whereas to show like, yeah, the movement of time, whereas my takeaway from it had just been, it's something that could have happened, didn't happen. Either way, Spider-Man had nothing to do with it. Yeah. Like, do you know what I mean? Like it was a disaster that could have happened. Yeah. Anyway, so then, and I'm more so interested in what's happening yeah. Completely elsewhere. forgot about it until I watched it this time, and even forgot about whilst we're talking about the movie. And it suddenly, when you mentioned Blackout, Sally Field, I'm like, they were doing this weird thing with planes. Uh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Weird thing with planes. It, it, was, so, it, it was just, <laughs> it was just distracting. It didn't add anything. It just distracted me from the fight with Electro. Someone else we don't talk about yet. Uh, I was going to say Spider Man. We talked about him a lot. Stanley, the co-creator of Spider Man. We get a cameo. Yeah, another Stanley cameo. He's at the graduation ceremony. It's a fun moment. Peter yep. is in his graduation outfit, but he's still got his Spider-Man mask on. And Stan says, hey, I think I know that guy. That was yeah. fun. Yeah. But his last cameo in The Fast Amazing Spider-Man, not just yet. I mean, yes, absolutely. I'd go as far as saying, best one. Yeah, best Stanley cameo. From any, I'm like going all the way back to more, that's in 95, all the yep. way through. It, absolutely. It is such a good scene. And so yes, well put together. No the dialogue. Fact that he's oblivious, no dialogue. <laughs> no dialogue. <laughs> all the times he almost got squished or hurt or injured yes. because of the fight with uh, Lizard. It's so well put together. It really is. And there's a moment. In this movie, it's when he's distracting the security guards as Peter Parker, and he's accidentally like tying their shoelaces together, spilling coffee. I mean, he's doing it deliberately, but he's making it like an accident. It's again one of those really great moments, and how he pulls it off. Um, he used he started with a mime to get all that correct, Andrew Garfield, um, to get his timing of because it is a visual comedy that is not natural to him. And it took working and studying and working out the timing and everything with a, a mime, a professional mime, to get that to work properly. Um, and it worked. And he 
he used the uh, they did another similar thing in the first movie using the same mime to set out that timing and stuff. But it's another one of those like really golden little scenes that you kind of forget happens until you rewatch the movie. You're like, oh yeah, this was great. This is the kind of Peter Parker I wanted to see more of this. And again, because they're setting up so much stuff, this is the these are the Peter Parker and Gwen Stacy character moments that we are robbed of, unfortunately. Yeah, but again, like you with the with these rewatches, I I just forgot how much I liked about these films. So I'm really glad that I have gone back. With the Spider-Man costume, we've kind of touched upon it already. The costume for this film is tailored to resemble his original costume from the comic books when the character was first introduced. After The Amazing Spider-Man, the first film, was criticised by fans for its inaccurate costume, the wardrobe for this film includes the original colour patterns for Spider-Man's hands and feet and the large white eyepieces, which had not been done in any major motion picture about Spider-Man. And again, that final scene with Tom Holland, we do get it in No Way Home, probably more so than what we get it here. But I quite liked the costume, although it was darker in that first Amazing Spider-Man film. But the costume here works great. And when you were talking before about the, the ripples in the costume, I always notice it, not to the point where it takes me out of the movie, but it just, you're right, it makes it look real. Like it's not just flat spandex. But the yeah. costume here, the portrayal of Spider-Man, the look of Spider-Man is, is really working. Like it is looking so much like Spider-Man. But not actually, you know, with the special effects, and there's, this is such a uh, special effects heavy movie like you'd expect, the bit in Times Square, definitely oh, yeah. a highlight of the movie in his his web shooters are malfunctioning. Since so instead of two, he's only got use. one. Yeah, but then he's like he's holding down, so he's like doing multiple webs in different directions. Yeah. Electro is recognizing that people are about to touch metal railings, and it's just Spider-Man in live action. I've not really seen where he's saving multiple people at a street level. And it is so well done. It's got in that same scene, Spider-Man hanging out with the fire brigade. He's got the hose. He's wearing a hat. It's just, it is is great. And we said earlier, you know, the bit with the rhino, and he's got the microphone from the police. And yeah. before he goes into action to go up against Rhino, he just casually throws the microphone back to the police. Classic Spidey. It is, it is the best Spider-Man we've had in live action. But that whole scene around Times Square for me is just phenomenal. The scene was created digitally for the big VFX fight between Spider-Man and Electro, which required taking 36,000 shots of the real location first and then added everything else in after. I mean, the, the scene I mean, speaks works. for itself. I mean, it really does. It is an absolute highlight of the film. Yeah, and the plotting. I mean, like you said, he's one web shooter's been damaged by Electro, so he's having to use it's his left hand that's damaged. So he has to use his right to catch a falling police car while uh, whilst then he 
w- grabs some webbing in his left hand, flings it at a guy on the right side whilst webbing the hand of a person on the left side and pulling them together. And the slow motion, you you get through his spider sense, he knows exactly what's everything slows down. He, you can see what's electrified and where all the dangers are, including like, why does he have to stop the police car? Because it's going to crush a guy in the front. But you do know that there's a woman holding a baby about to touch one rail and another guy just reaching to touch the other one on the other side. And like I said, one web shooter to get all three saves. And he does it. Brilliant. And it's flawless. The special effects hold up really well. The timing, the music, everything is sound design. Again, one of those bright, bright highlights in this film. I'm showing you again what without the the requirement to build a universe out of a movie, I think we would have we were robbed of what would have been like a really great outing for Spidey. Yeah, I agree. On the music, you mentioned music was a big component of the Times Square scene. The first film had James Horner. He chose not to return for this film. He didn't like how it turned out compared to the first one, and he called the movie terrible and dreadful. And he was ultimately replaced by Hans Zimmer. There you go, Hans Zimmer. Wow, we've talked about him a lot on the podcast across. I've lost track how many episodes. Mark Webb and Hans Zimmer formed a super group with Farrell Williams, Johnny Marr, Mike Isaacer, and former Eurythmic David A. Stewart to create the music for the sequel. Eventually, Stewart did not take part in the film's music and the supergroup created as The Magnificent Six, a reference to The Sinister Six, was composed of Williams, Marr, Isinger, Junkie XL, Steve Mazzaro, and Andrew Kazawinski. And they were, of course, assisting Zimmer. I mean, wow. What, yeah. a, what, a, what a team. What a, what a super group. Alicia Keys and Kendrick Lamar recorded a song titled It's On Again. Webb described the song as upbeat and exciting. So there you go. I mean, they have this super group and then also roped in Alicia Keys and Kendrick Lamar. I mean, I remember from that first time watching the movie, I walked away. I mean, I've got to be honest, I didn't appreciate Andrew Garfield as Spider-Man as much as I do now, although I always liked him as Spider-Man. But when I first watched this movie, it was the, the score that I was like, I loved it. I absolutely loved the score. And then just behind the scenes, like how it all came about, the the people involved, of course, you got Hans Zimmer leading the charge, but everybody else, and it's, yeah, it is such a good score and so different to what we got from James Horner in that first movie. And what we also get as well in this, like so many times, the theme for the Spider-Man cartoon from 1967, it's played... Yes, his ringtone. It is, it's played repeatedly, Peter's ringtone and Spider-Man also whistles the theme when going up against Alexi. 
yeah. comes back again. I mean, they did it as well in the Raimi films, but it was it was the busker in the yeah. street, wasn't it? But it's yeah. um, um, the phone tone makes so much more sense. Like it's such a, it's less common now. People usually just pick a pop song or or one of the standard phone tones. But at the time, this, these movies were coming out like it wasn't as easy. So of course you had like like I remember at the time, so many of my friends had the nineties uh, X Men theme as their yeah, phone no, tone. I had that. <laughs> I had that as well. <laughs> With him having it as his theme or his ringtone. And then to be humming it himself, that tracks. If yeah, it's something it's you hear on a regular basis, yeah, it is catchy. So it was a good way of including it. But, I mean, for me, the score is up there with Garfield and Stone and their performances. It is yeah. such a selling point for this movie. I, I absolutely love it. And I've got to be honest, I've listened to it so many times. It is such a good score yeah um and like i said especially when on those particular occasions on those big set pieces um less so the electro fight there's you know they have him play itsy bitsy spider on the rails (laughs) um, in like a trap style or like a dub step style um which you know it's like a a joke or a punchline but the, the 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 fight with green goblin the the attempted save of gwen the um, all the other big emotional beats of the movie—it's it, flawless. It really is. I can't even tell you what it is except for moving. I can't remember quite the notes. I can just remember how they make me feel. Um, it's yeah, it's really well done. Uh, which I guess brings us finally to our rating. Um, well, before we, I guess we touched on it a little bit already, but before we get to the rating. I just want to go through this. There's a bit of information here on cancelled sequels and spin-offs. I won't go too far into it. So kind of, we've touched on a lot of it already. Sony had originally intended the film to launch an expansive film universe around Spider-Man to compete with the MCU. In 2013, Sony announced a third Amazing Spider-Man film with a release date of June 10th, 2016 doesn't that just hurt they actually yeah. announced it it was coming it was going to be a thing that was going to be made the series was to include spin-off films featuring the sinister six and venom with drew goddard writing and directing the two-part the amazing spider-man sinister six films Uh, Alex Kurtzman would direct a Venom and Carnage film. There's so much information here. Ed Solomon, one of the writers on Bill and Ted, he was involved. Sinister Six Part One had been planned for a November 2016 release. Additionally, and this was by August... 2014, Sony had hired Lisa Joy to write the script for a 2017 female-led film starring Felicia Hardy, also known as Black Cat. Sony announced plans for a spin-off based on Spider-Man 2099 to be released in late 2017. 
The character later appeared in the post-credits scene of Spider-Man Into the Spider-Verse, voiced by Oscar Isaac. They are, or were, all over the place with their dates, yeah. with their uh, talent, the the yeah, projects. Because like, Drew Goddard did the first season of Daredevil on Netflix and like a, a really smart get for a project of this type. Like he proved without a doubt how well he could do on that and other projects as well, but too much. Like, oh, too, said, all yeah. of it built at the sacrifice of the integrity of this film. Um, like I said, and knowing it just, it, having it, announced so much, it just makes me question even more. Why did you speed through so many things? Why did you speed through Harry? What you didn't need to set up literally every single character in this one. You could have set up a couple of them to be spun off, and then you build up more of the more of the other ones in one of the other movies. You had time. You were making them. But yeah, it's just that whole no, 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 do them all now. Yeah, I mean, back in 2014, Garfield and Webb stated that they would come back for a third film. At that time, neither were certain of their involvement in a fourth. Even if there was going to be a fourth, Webb wasn't going to direct. But then, following the mixed critical reviews and franchise low box office performance of this film, the future of the franchise was unclear. And then people started leaving the project for different films. The Amazing Spider-Man 3 would have included Chris Cooper returning as Norman Osborn and focused on Peter recovering from Gwen Stacy's death. That was delayed to the point where it then just never happened. Then at one time they were planning as a two-part movie, but 2014, that's when the Sony Pictures hack happened. It was revealed that Emma Stone was in talks to return as a resurrected Gwen Stacy. All over the place. It is all over the place. Uh, It it really is like a a throw things at the wall and see what sticks mentality of like, we'll just do everything. I know, but it sounds like that's what Sony is still doing with their spider-man films and even though venom let there be carnage isn't a good film i reckon it is decent enough at the box office for them to go ahead with a third morbius delayed until april i'll have to wait and see what happens with that one i'm pretty sure aaron taylor johnson if not cast is in talks for craven the hunter so they're going yeah that's a big rumor now um, there's equal talks that it's for a standalone as well as like, oh, no, 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 no. It's not going to be a standalone. It's actually for the MCU next Spider-Man movie. Like, how do you, where do you go from here? You have Craven, Hunt, Peter, because there's still no definitive answer for the public in the public's eye of, oh, he killed Mysterio, so oh, but this Craven's this like, is the thing though, like, but Craven isn't MCU. Craven is Venom and Morbius, which is still yeah. Sony. So I do which, like the idea of he's an Andrew interesting Garfield being their Spider Man. I like that, a, but yeah, as a I solid just, film for himself. 
I know. Yeah, you no, know, me, I want that as well. I I can't see honestly, I cannot see Sony announcing the amazing Spider-Man 3. I would love them to, I really would. But I just don't see it happening. Maybe I mean I I'd say testing the waters with him appearing in other films. They clearly had such a positive reaction to him being in No Way Home. I just oh, I don't know. Like I was happy the end of No Way Home to have Venom disappear again. Get 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 Venom away from Tom Holland. But um yeah, I mean the future is unknown, but on the back of this movie, never all these years later did I think we would get Andrew Garfield back as Spider-Man. And as we've said, we did in No Way Home. And he's great. He really is great. But you've tried to get us to the rating once already. <laughs> let's um, let's do it. If you're going to rate this movie out of five. It's hard. It, it It's really hard because of the, the bright spots are, uh, that are done well, are done so well. Andrew Garfield, Hammer Stone, Dean DeHaan before the whole Goblin thing. Um, the, uh, the score, the costume design, the special effects. There's so much done well. Uh, and my natural love for the character as well. Like He is my favorite comic book character. But the parts, when you watch this movie on their own, that slow it down, distract from where it's supposed to be going or where it feels like it wants to be going. Um, I'm going to come in at a three, which, you know, is still a recommend. Despite the things that it doesn't do right because of studio interference, what it, when it, what it does get right and when it gets it right, it gets it so right. And for those alone, I recommend checking out this film. Um, you know, but yeah, I think I'm going to come in at a three out of five. How about yourself? Well, as I said earlier, my review of the first movie was a 3.5 and that was elevated due to, well, primarily due to Garfield and Stone. And it's, it's the same again here. I mean, I can't come in higher than that. I mean, I do have a lot of fun with it, but then critiquing it as a whole, it's nothing higher than that. I mean, we're both saying it. There's bright sparks about this movie. There's things that work, and when when they're working well, they're working really well. But it's an overstuffed movie. The portrayal of Electro, I'm not a fan of. There's there's probably just as much to dislike as there is like, but I'm leaning more towards like on the basis of Garfield, Spider-Man, Stone is Gwen Stacy, the score and the Spider-Man visuals look amazing. Like <laughs> they really do. Um, yeah. 3.5 out of five. And I enjoy like honestly, doing this review, I went back and rewatched the first one as well, back to back, and I like them more now than I have done previously. I feel like each time I come back to them, and I've got to be honest, watching them now is the first time since watching No Way Home, which you know I probably added to my enjoyment a little bit. But 
the more I go back to them, the more I like them. I remember that first one, 2012. I wasn't able to see it at the cinema. Watched it at home on Blu-ray, and it didn't do too much for me. That basketball scene, I thought was ridiculous. Reminded me of Team Wolf. But going yeah. back to it years later, I found more to like about it. And I feel having more distance from the Raimi trilogy as well. But these films, I think more and more now, are able to stand on their own merit. And there's a lot to like about them. And hopefully, if we're going to see Garfield back as Spider-Man, they, they give him good material because he's capable of a lot. Like, he's a very good actor. And, yeah, I'm hoping to see more from him. Like, up until No Way Home, like, when asked about his experience playing Spider-Man, he said he was heartbroken. Like, the movies that they ended up making weren't what he hoped they would be. Yeah. He had a better time on No Way Home. So, hopefully, like, some wounds have been healed all these years later he gets to continue to have a good time playing Spider-Man because he's, I'm going to say, the best. He is the best at playing Spider-Man in live action. There you go. Yeah. Well, that's it for our episode, all about the amazing Spider-Man 2. If you'd like to contact us about this episode or suggest a topic for an upcoming episode, you can find us on Facebook as Sounds Like Comics Podcast. You've been listening to Luke and Jay, the guys from Sounds Like Comics. See you soon.